following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Sometimes we want to blame God. The ultimate example of that is uh, Job's wife. Job was going through some horrible trials, physically, uh, family-wise, and his wife said, after a while, because it just kept going on and on and on. And his wife said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? Because obviously God is doing something to you that's horrible. And you might as well just go ahead and check out. Well, what we find out in the book is that Job isn't that kind of a man. He's a man of faith and he trusts God. He doesn't know why he's going through what he's going through, but he knows that God is good. And God works out his perfect and, and glorious plan in his life. So let's start reading from verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, that is in the midst of a trial. The trial itself is not the temptation. The trial is the atmosphere in which temptation often comes. Because things are going very wrong. They're just not going like we suppose. Because uh, it's hard for us to reckon with the fact that God doesn't always make the Christian life a bed of roses. He actually allows us to go through very difficult trials as we follow Christ. And so he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, or when we embrace it, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my, brother, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that is the gospel, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures, that we would be those who were saved and set apart to him through what Christ has accomplished. Now, what we want to do is look at this passage, and I, I got to tell you, this has been one of my, the most important passages in my life as I was growing in the Christian life, because it explains to us how temptation takes place. And guess what? It's not God who is tempting you. <laughs> Your temptation comes from within. So what we're, what we're looking at today is we're looking at what to do about temptation in the midst of trials. When temptations come in the midst of our trials, how are we to respond? What are we supposed to do? Now, we know that God allows trials for our growth, right? We've seen this in the first chapter of James, that the reason God allows trials in our lives is he wants us to grow, and we grow through trials. And he requires our co cooperation if we're going to grow. You've got to stop saying, why is God doing this to me? And come to the place where you realize, thank you, Father, that you are sovereign over all things, and this trial couldn't come into my life apart from your good purposes for my life. And so I can give you thanks even for this trial that I hate, and I, I can't wait until it's over. Now, the trials contributes to our testimony that God has been faithful um, you know, we are living in a time when there are a lot of people who are just filled with fear because of all the stuff that's going on in the world. It's, it's like, what's going to happen here? 
Here we are in, in nights in California. What's going to happen here? I doubt there'll be a flood, but what if there's an earthquake that shakes the entire area to the point that every, everything just comes down? And why would I even suggest that to get you to worrying about it? Well, uh, we understand that God is in control. And because of his love for us, he custom designs our trials. But what can happen in the midst of trials is we can be tempted to sin. And so James wants to explain about this temptation and how we're supposed to respond to it. And because trials do often lead to increased temptation. Now, what we've just seen in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, this entire chapter of James is about trials. That is, difficult times, the things aren't just perfect. They're, uh, bad things happen. <clears throat> it would be nice, wouldn't it, if, uh, if God just kept us from ever having any troubles? You know, like you wouldn't have to ever be afraid that somebody had stolen your identity or somehow got into your bank account and was just siphoning all the money off it. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, what God wants us to do is to trust him. We need to trust him because he is sovereign over all things. I have noticed this uh, among Christians, is we're always suggesting a solution to every problem. When somebody starts talking about the challenge they're facing, we immediately want to give them a solution for that. You know, like the couple that was here last week, I don't want to say their names because this is going on the net, and so I don't want to do that, but... Um, they were here. They're in a country where they're, they're working, they're doing the work of the gospel in a very, very difficult field. Now, you might come up with 15 solutions for their challenge, you know, learning this language and all that. But let me tell you, the only solution is God. He's the only one who can take them through this, and he's the only one who can take you through the trials that you are going to face in life. It's only God and God alone. He is sovereign over all, which means he is able to accomplish his will in our lives. But he often allows us to go through troubles. In fact, this is the way Paul put it. I've, I, I think I quoted this last week, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, I don't want you to be, he's writing to the Corinthians, he says, I don't want you to be unaware of the trials, the difficulties I faced in Asia Minor. We were tempted beyond our ability to bear. We even despaired of life. He said, it got so bad, I didn't know if I was going to live through it. You ever felt like that? You just know how you're going to live through it? He says, but he did this in order that I, went, I might no longer trust in myself, but in God who raises the dead. Now, if you read some of the things that Paul went through, they make our trials look very small. Uh, he was... He was uh, he went through all kinds of things. Find some of those lists. He was beaten. He was, in sh on, he, was in, he was in a shipwreck, worse than a car wreck, and uh, abandoned by all people. And yet God remained faithful to him. And he said, God allowed me to be tested in Asia Minor because he wanted me to learn to trust him and not myself. In other words, it isn't my ingenuity. It isn't the fact that I can Google this problem and find out what the solution is. It's that I trust the living God, that I am in his hands, and that he is taking me through these things, and he's going to watch over me. He's going to guide me and lead me. I heard a testimony this past week by a, a Jewish man who came to faith in Christ. 
an older gentleman that was exposed to the gospel. And he said, the greatest thing about this, as I was exposed to, to me, was this. He read, Jesus said, I am the door. And he said he wasn't the door to get out of something. He was the door to get, come close to God, to come into the presence of God. And he, and he, and he says, I, as I read him, I realized that what he was offering us was a relationship. And he says, but understand what a relationship is. He's explaining to us all. He says, a relationship is an experience of that person. And he said, for the first time I heard, I saw there in the words of Jesus that we can experience a relationship with the living God. Because I had always believed in God, but I thought he was far, far away. And he certainly didn't hear me. He didn't know me personally. But the gospel of Jesus Christ brings us to the place where we enter into a relationship with God. We experience him. We experience what it's like to live in fellowship with him. I moved from over there, over there to over here, and uh, somebody was telling me it's going to totally disorient you. Isn't that weird? If I had you all stand and say, let's, let's just switch places. It's amazing, isn't it? Your perspective, something so simple as that. Uh, I've, I've often been impressed with this. When Jesus said, uh, uh, he told his disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to obey. That means teaching them how to obey all of his commandments. For example, one of the things that Jesus Christ has called us to is to allow him to use us to love people. And you know, sometimes we are we, we don't realize that God wants to cure us of some things in our lives. There are certain kinds of people we just don't like. You know, and so as soon as we see someone who has certain characteristics, we avoid having to encounter them. But God has called us to love people. And when you read in the text the different things that happen uh, to Jesus, the kind of people he encountered and the way he treated them, it makes you realize, you know, God must be asking me, he must be commanding me, and he must be enabling me to love people that I would, normally would not like. Isn't that right? Let me show you something. I think this is Luke 10.30. Luke he says, um, he asks this, this, this person comes to him and says, uh, uh, he says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And then in verse 26, Jesus answers him and says, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? How does the Mosaic law read to you? And the man says, he answers and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Because what you heard this morning is we cannot obey the commandments of God apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And then it says, the man wishing to justify himself. Justify himself for what? For not loving his neighbor. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And of course, Jesus tells this story of the Good Samaritan. Notice verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest, a priest, a, an agent of the living God, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, it's very likely he was going towards Jerusalem, this man who was walking by him, to serve his, priest, his priestly duties. But what does he do? He passed by on the other side. I don't want to get involved with this guy who's all bloody and beat up. I got things to do that are important. I got to go serve in the temple. Likewise, a Levite who was a, who was a helper of the priests came by, and also he went to the place and saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. Now, you, got, you all know Samaritans were hated by the Jews because they were half-breeds. They weren't full, fully Jewish. They, had, they were the results of intermarriage between some Assyrians who had been brought in and, uh, and Jews. And so they were outcasts. And they actually set up their own worship on Mount Gerizim because they believed that they were just as worthy to, to approach the living God as the Jews were who worshiped in Jerusalem. So the Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now the thing to understand is Jesus is shocking their system because he's going to use this Samaritan as an example of what a good neighbor is. And so he says, he came to him and he bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and then he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii. That's two days' wages. So whatever you make a day, just multiply that by two. He took two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper and he said, take care of him and whatever more you need, when I return, I will repay you. Now that's better than the government, isn't it? He's paying for his care. And then Jesus asked the man who wanted to know who his neighbor was, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the man said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Now you have to understand that the Jews, this is what they considered to be a neighbor. A neighbor was a good Jewish neighbor, not anybody else. And some of us think that our neighbor is simply the person who lives next door to us. But your neighbor is whoever you meet on the path. Love your neighbor as yourself. Are you kidding me? I'm supposed to love people that God puts in my path? I'm supposed to allow Jesus to set his love on people through me, to show them, to demonstrate to them what the love of Christ is? Are you kidding? No, I'm not. I'm, that's the truth. That's what Jesus taught. Now, I've noticed this. There are a lot of Christians who cannot stand people. They don't want to be around people. They don't want to be around you. <laughs> because they have such a hard time loving people. You know, when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they became judges. 
they begin to pass judgment on people. We do it all the time, don't we? When you go to the mall and you're looking around and you're judging people, you're thinking, look at that absurd outfit. <laughs> look at that person. Look at the way that he or she is dressed or walks or talks or whatever. But Jesus has called us to love people. That's the hardest assignment of all. You talk about teaching people how to obey his commandments. One of them is you need to be able to show them how to love people. That's a huge assignment. And that's what he's called us to. And so when Jesus is, what he is, what uh, James is telling us here is that God uses our trials to bring us to the, to the end of ourselves so that we would no longer trust in ourselves and our judgment. See, my judgment is typically that there are certain people I don't want to get tied up with. I don't want to talk to them about Christ. I just want to keep going on my way. But what Jesus has told us, and you, you remember in, uh, when Jesus went and dined with the, with the Pharisee, and they were reclining at table, and this is the way it worked. This was a rich man's house, and he, they ate in the front courtyard, so it was accessible to the public. And it was actually a common thing for people who were walking by a wealthy person's house, and they were having a banquet, for them to come in and take some of the, the food, the extra food. In comes this lady who was a woman of the street, a sinner, the Pharisee says. She comes in, and Jesus is reclining at table with the Pharisee, and so they're reclining on one elbow, taking food from the table, the very low tables, and his feet were sticking out the back, and she stands over his feet behind him, and she's weeping, and her tears are falling on his feet. And then she wipes them dry with her hair. Now, it was a common custom if a man came into your house that you would have, if you were very wealthy, you'd have your lowliest servant wash his feet. If you were just a common person, you would wash his feet. But Jesus came into his house because he had been invited over for dinner. The Pharisee never did offer that his servant wash his feet or him to wash his feet. But this woman comes in and she starts weeping. And she pours out her tears onto Jesus' feet, and then she stoops down and dries his feet with her hair. And you're thinking, boy, that's odd, isn't it? You would want her to get out of the house. You know, we don't want any weird people in here. <laughs> and then she takes an a, a vial of alabaster, which is very expensive, and pours it onto his feet and anoints his, his uh, feet with it. And the Pharisee is irate because he says, this man calls himself a prophet. And he doesn't even know who this woman is. She's a sinner. She's a woman of the street. He shouldn't be allowing her to touch him. She's defiling him. And so Jesus explains to him why she was doing this. It was because she had been forgiven much. She was a woman of the street. And she had many sins. Now, the Pharisee had all kinds of sins, too. It's very obvious in the context, except that his sins were acceptable sins. They were sins that they agreed together in their fellowship of the Pharisees that it was okay to be proud and arrogant and look down on people. But he wasn't aware of his own sinfulness. This woman was very aware of her sinfulness. And so Jesus says, 
Let me, he, gives him a, he tells him a story about two people who were forgiven, one 50 denarii, which would be 50 days wages, and one 500 denarii, 500 days of wages. They owed that to somebody, and this man forgave both of them. And he says, which would be more grateful? And the Pharisee says, well, I guess the one that was forgiven the most. He said, that's exactly right. And I came into your house, and you didn't wash my feet. You didn't greet me with a kiss, which was common custom. You didn't anoint my head with oil. But she's come in. She hasn't stopped weeping over my feet and washing them and dyeing them with her hair and anointing my feet with oil. Why is that? Because she was forgiven much. You see, this was a sinner. That's what the Pharisee says. She's a sinner. In other words, she's known. She's got a reputation. And Jesus allowed her to touch him. And then he says to her, your sins have been forgiven you. What did the people there do? Oh, they were greatly offended. They were greatly offended. Who does he think he is? He can't just forgive her sins. They don't know anything about what Jesus is going to do. He's actually going to go to the cross and die on the cross for people like her. And he forgives her of her sins. And so what happens, this, this woman who had suffered much because she had a reputation and people treated her based upon her reputation and then she meets up with Jesus and Jesus actually shows love for her and forgives her of her sins. Isn't that amazing? And you see, a lot of times what happens to us, we need a trial because we have actually begun to think as though it's because we do certain things that we've been accepted by God. I go to church. I give to the church. I do this. I do that. I do the other thing. That's not why you were forgiven. Why were you forgiven? You were forgiven because of Christ. Because Jesus paid for your sins. And therefore, I should have a heart like this woman. I should have a heart that easily loves others. And so God will allow us to go through trials to bring us to the end of ourselves, and we have to put our trust in him afresh and anew. And what I find out is that there are some people that I would naturally want to avoid, that maybe God is putting them on my path because he wants me to love them. Now, I know, I know what we're all thinking is, well, what he wants you to do is share the gospel with them, and maybe keep a little bit of distance so you don't get any cooties. But... <laughs> But he actually wants us to love them, to manifest love towards them. Well, how do you love people? Well, first of all, you actually love them in your heart, and then you demonstrate it in the way you treat them. I've, I've, I've actually heard some people witness, they called it witnessing, sharing the gospel, in a way that was nothing but condemnation. It was just kind of getting the guy up against the wall and beating him to death. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that God sent his son into the world to stand in the place of sinners who don't deserve salvation but can receive it by simply coming to be joined to Jesus Christ. And you're the contact point because you have Christ living in you. If you have Christ living in you, which the Bible says you do, then you are supposed to, as you are living your life every day, you're going to run into people who need Christ's touch, and he's living in you. <laughs> Pretty simple, huh? 
And so what he does is he allows you to go through trials. And what trials have always done to me, I'm not saying this about you, but what the trials have always done with me is they knock you off your high horse. Right? They make you realize that you are absolutely, totally, completely dependent upon the living Christ. And if Jesus wants to love somebody that he puts in my path through me, that's what I'm called to do. That's what I'm called to do. And I, what it starts with is I actually treat them as though they are objects of Christ's love. I was standing on the street corner with a couple of friends of mine one time in San Pablo, California, over in Richmond, actually. And we're standing there talking to each other. We'd been out to lunch, and we're talking theology and just having a great time. And all of a sudden, this guy walks up to us. He looked like a homeless person. He comes walking toward us. And we're all thinking, uh-oh, here we go. This guy's going to be asking us for something. The guy walks up, and so we're, we're all, as we're talking about it, one of the guys suggests, maybe we need to witness to him. As the guy walks up, he says, uh, have, you, have you guys ever heard about Jesus Christ? Has anybody ever told you the gospel? <laughs> and he witnessed to us. <laughs> and I said, I said to him, isn't it amazing the kind of people God chooses to save? Isn't it something? All you got to do is look around the room. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's amazing who God saves. He saves needy people. And this is the thing that we keep being told in Scripture over and over and over and over again. That God wants to manifest his love through us. And he's equipped us to love. Why do you think he gave you the Holy Spirit? Do you think he gave you the Holy Spirit so you could be spectacular? No. He gave you the Holy Spirit so you could be used as an instrument in his hands. Remember what he told the disciples? He says, I want you to go into Jerusalem and wait until you're endued with power from on high and then go and make disciples of all the nations. The Spirit of God had, has come to live within every believer. I can prove this to you. For it's Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. He's talking about how the person in the flesh can't do this and how the person in the Spirit uh, is experiencing the power of God in his life. And then he says, and he, and he was talking about people in his flesh, and he says, but you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. And so the, 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 it, it's simple. If you belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Why? You have the Holy Spirit so that you can love people that you wouldn't normally love. So that you can demonstrate love towards them in giving them the good news about what has happened, what God has done in sending his son into the world. That's what he's called us to do. And so when we have trials, it's because he wants us to get off our high horse. He'll knock us off it. And he wants us to start to live our lives in true humility, the humility of Christ, and start loving people that he brings into our lives. What do you think he brings those people into your lives? You know, sometimes don't you get kind of disgusted? Why would you, why would you make me encounter this person? I try to stay away from these kind of people. Maybe he wants to talk to them. Maybe he wants to show them, manifest love to them through you. That's, a, that's an odd way to do it, isn't it? 
That's a God way to do it. That's how God does it. So what do we do about temptation in the midst of trials? This is what we should do. First, we need to stop blaming God. That's what he says in verse 13. Why? God never tempts you to sin. Did you know that? Pretty simple. God never tempts you to sin. He's not tempted by evil, and he never tempts anyone to do evil. So when you're tempted, it's not God that's doing it. It's what's happening inside of you. And so the second thing is we have to understand the dynamic of temptation. What I mean by dynamic is simply how does it work? How does temptation work anyway? And so uh, James gives us a very simple explanation of how temptation comes about in our lives. And it often happens in the midst of trials when things aren't going the way we want them to go. And this is what he says, basically. The dynamics of temptation, according to James, is first we're carried away and enticed by our own lust. What's being generated in our heart. When lust is conceived, which means when we embrace it as our own, then the result is death. It's a kind of spiritual death. It's not losing your salvation. It's losing your fellowship and your joy. Have you ever lost your joy as a Christian? Ever go through those times where you just can't believe what a grump you are and how you can never have any joy unless the circumstances are just right? And then Paul, this is where I first learned it from Paul, and Paul basically tells the same thing, but he uses different terminology. He says, first of all, you experience the moods of the flesh. This is Romans 7. In Romans 7, verse 9, it talks about the moods of the flesh. The Greek, it's, it's translated the passions of the flesh, but it's a, the Greek word pothemos means mood. You know what a mood is? You know, that's what your wife or your husband gets into every once in a while, and they act like they're so unhappy. Something's really wrong. And we feel deficient. We feel like there's something that I need that I don't have. And so I'm feeling really needy in the moods of the flesh. The next thing that happens is we experience the lust of the flesh. Basically, this way this works in your heart is the flesh is just that part of you that remains of the fall. And it's basically, it's basically selfishness. It's all about me and what I need. Right? That's what the flesh is. And so he says, we first experience the moods of the flesh. That is, I begin to, the, the, the emotional atmosphere of my heart is that, man, I need something really bad. I don't even know what I need exactly to get out of this mess that I'm in. But then the, the, the flesh produces a specific desire. Now you can, you can uh, this is easy to illustrate with uh, people that are addicted to something. They, uh, they will begin to act in a certain way that somebody who's, who's very close to, a, for example, an alcoholic, they can tell when they're just about to get off the to begin to follow that same pattern. It's when they start acting like something's really wrong. I need something. And then the flesh offers a solution. What is it? I need to get wasted. I just need to be plastered. I need to get out of this world for a few minutes. And then the works of the flesh is when you actually do that. Just like what uh, 
what James said is when the lust is conceived, we actually take hold of it. It becomes our own. This is my solution. I was having a conversation with a, with a friend of mine who fell into very serious sin, has been disqualified from the ministry. And as we were talking, my heart was just breaking for this guy because he had fallen. And yet I realized, you know, it's really amazing with us. We, uh, we just can't see ourselves as we really are. That's why reading Romans 7 is so painful. I told Tony, I said, I picked you to read this because you and I both know what this feels like. I want to do the right thing, but I do the wrong thing. Why is that? Because of this, that the temptation arises in your heart. The lust of the flesh, and when I embrace the lust, I accomplish the works of the flesh. Drunkenness, or some other kind of sin that I'm so tempted to do to get relief from the tension that I feel inside. And the same result. The law kills me. The commandment kills me. That's what Romans 7, 9 says. The law came along. Paul said he didn't even notice that he was coveting everything. You know what covet means? Covet means that you want everything that everybody else has. So you go to somebody's house and they live in this big, luxurious, glorious house with all the accoutrements and you, want, you begin to, to lust after that. You want it. And the law says, thou shalt not covet. And Paul says, when that commandment came to me, I almost had a nervous breakdown because I couldn't stop coveting. Everything I saw, I coveted. And he says, it was to show me that the problem isn't with the law. The commandments were good. It's my heart that's bad. And so what happens is there is a kind of death that takes place. Now, this is described for us in John, 1 John. Since we're close, flip over to 1 John, just a few books to the right. Uh, and notice in 1 John chapter 1, notice this description. He says in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him, from Christ, and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is always who he is. God always manifests his character. He never walks in darkness. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? You know what it's like when you're, you're being tempted to sin, but you know you've got to get away from anybody's notice where you can fulfill this sin? You've got to get in darkness. He says, but God never does that. God is light. And it says, and if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, that is, we get in a, a secret place where we can carry out our sin and nobody know about it. Because we actually get to thinking, you know, the worst part about sin, what's really bad about sin is if people see it and they know you're a sinner, you're in big trouble. That's not the problem. We already know we're all sinners, don't we? We're aware of that. But what we want to do is we want to hide because we want to have this high reputation. I want people to think that I am really a super Christian. He says, so if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship. We're alive to him. We're experiencing this, this relationship. This is eternal life. John 17, 3. Eternal life is this, that you might know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. 
But when we have, he says, if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. With That is with Jesus and all those who are having fellowship with him. And the blood of Jesus, when we're having fellowship with him, it is continually cleansing us from all that would defile us. Have you ever thought, I used to think this as a young believer, if I'd fall into sin, but I always fall into sin in a way that nobody else ever knew. But when you fall into sin, you feel like, I can't talk to God. And so we shut down this relationship. We begin to walk in darkness. He says, if, if we say that we have no sin, I don't have any sin in me. He says, if we say that, we're deceiving who? Who are we deceiving? If I tell you I don't have any sin, I'm deceiving myself. We're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. The truth about this fact is not in us. He says, if we confess our sins, which means I go to the Father and I confess that I've sinned, and if I sinned against you, I come to you and say, I need to confess to you. I slandered you today and I want to ask your forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, and all that means is say, that's no big deal. It doesn't matter. Okay, so I've done something that people think is against the will of God. They don't know. I'm more sophisticated than that. I realize God doesn't. You know, I, I know about grace. We're saved by grace. There's a, there's a hyper grace teaching that means God doesn't care how you live. There are no commandments. That's false theology. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God has given you commandments. One of those commandments is, I want you to walk in the light, and I want you to be a witness, and I want you to be an agent of the love of Christ in people's lives. So if we say we have not sinned, that is, there's no ongoing effects of this. It doesn't make any difference. I've never actually met anybody who uh, anybody who claimed to be a Christian that could just live in continual rebellion against God and think that they were okay. I don't think that's possible. I would call that a false believer if they th actually thought they could live like that for very long. And then he, this is my fa favorite passage, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that no one would sin. And if anyone does sin, at that moment, while we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, a righteous one. The reason I say it is the tense of these verbs, without giving, me, giving you a, a Greek lesson, what it says is, if anyone sins, and this is the implication, while he is in the act of sinning, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, a righteous one. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the world. And by this we have come to know that we know him if we keep his commandments. See, um, you can't be born again again. You, do you know that? You can't be born again again. It's only one time thing. You come to faith in Christ. But you can sin, and you can falter, and you can, and you can make a mess of your life. But God, who's in charge of your life, can bring about the kinds of trial that you desperately need in order to get your senses back, to gain your equilibrium, to reset your GPS, and you realize that I'm going in the wrong direction. God's in charge of all that. 
So he says to us that we should stop blaming God for our temptation and understand the dynamics of temptation. It's not God that's tempting me. It's my own flesh. It arises in my heart. And there are especially times now. I did learn this lesson. I say I learned it. I, I know it's true. I know that's what I'm supposed to do. And I've learned to actually do it many times. Many times I don't do it. And that is this. That when you, ex when you begin to, ex to be aware of the fact that you are living in the moods of the flesh, the moods of the flesh is when you feel desperately in need of something other than God to make your life whole. You're in trouble because you're very susceptible to the lusts of the flesh. And so what am I supposed to do? Well, I'm supposed to recognize the dynamics of temptation, and I'm supposed to flee to God for deliverance, even before I commit the sin. Because I'm being tempted to go in that direction. Now, notice this. This is the last thing we're supposed to do, and that is to rely on God's character. Rely on God's character. Don't rely on your character. I mean, you may have a really good character, but let me tell you something. God has a perfect character. His heart is perfect. And so listen to what he says back in James. Let me go back to James here. In, uh, in James chapter 1, verse uh, 16 through 18, listen to what he says. Do not be deceived, my, my, my beloved brethren. In other words, he really cared about them. And God cares about us. Don't, don't be deceived. Every good thing given and every perfect gift, the, the, the idea of this is everything that God has given to you and every perfect gift that you have ever received is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He's always the same. You're not. You are what's called mutable. You can change. But he's immutable. He never changes. His love for you never diminishes. Now that's stunning, isn't it? How could that possibly be? Because there's times when I am not lovable at all. But his love for us never diminishes. He has set his love upon us in Christ Jesus. And this is the picture. Romans 5, 8 says, God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, before we ever knew Christ, Christ died for us. Christ died for us when we were sinners. That's true of everybody in this room. Now, when he wrote that, when Paul wrote that in Romans chapter 5, he was writing to people in Rome, some Christians in Rome, and he's telling them, chronologically, when you were still in sin, Christ died for you. Now, Jesus died in 30 A.D., and he's writing this something like 60 A.D. So 30 years before, Jesus had died for them, even before they asked him to. Do you know, they've checked the records, and they found that the computer in heaven, that no one ever asked God to send Jesus to save them. He did it because he desired to save us. And this is what it's going to take. His own son coming into the world and becoming one of us and then dying in our place. And the gospel coming to us in the power of the Spirit. And our eyes were open to the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we believed and we were saved.
And so what James says is, don't be deceived. But understand this, every good thing given, that is every, everything that's been given by God to you, and every perfect gift is, is, is from above. It comes from God, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. You've never met a person like that. Everybody you know is, does not have that. You can't say that about them uh, absolutely. You can say they, they're really a solid person. They tend to remain the same in their, in their character, but all of us are mutable, and we can get cold in our heart against God. So he says, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. I'd like to just really hammer this away, but I won't because I don't want to offend anybody. But what this passage tells you is God is the one who caused you to be born again. He did it. He says, in the exercise of his will, his decisions, his deciding, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He says, I'm going to save Dewey. And so what did he do? He brought the gospel to him. When he was in the midst of a trial, I remember it. The gospel came and it penetrated his hearts. His heart, his, he only has one heart. He, had demonstrated, he penetrated his heart, he believed it, and he was saved. So he says, remember this. Remember this. As you're going through trials, as you're going through temptation, remember the temptation isn't coming from God. Everything he's given you is perfect. And in the exercise of his will, his sovereign will, his deciding, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be the kind of, of first fruits among his creatures. <laughs> I love that. We're the first fruits. Now he's, he's writing in the first century, and these people truly were the first crop of believers who had believed on Jesus Christ. But they were scattering like crazy because they were being persecuted. Did you read in the paper that, that the church in, in Egypt, uh, the church in China is being persecuted again? I mean, real difficult things. I, this was the most hor horrific thing I ever heard. The biggest house church in China, I think it's in Beijing, um, they shut it down. They made it illegal. And they took all of the pastors, all of his possessions, they took everything away from him because they want to motivate him to stop preaching the gospel. Now that truly is scary to me. <laughs> they took all of his possessions. They emptied his bank account. They took everything away from him. But who's going to supply his needs? You know what they think? You know what that guy thinks? He thinks that God's going to meet his needs. Isn't that something? He actually believes that God's going to meet his needs, and so he's not going to stop preaching the gospel. You know, this has happened many times. The gospel has been outlawed, outlawed in many, many different uh, situations in the world. And guess what? The gospel keeps going out. You heard last week and at our house fellowship, some of you were at our house fellowship when, when the missionaries were communicating the kind of the kind of roadblock they have, which is to learn this language that's so very difficult. 
What would it be like wanting to share the gospel with people and you, could, you wouldn't know, the, you couldn't take the first step in making it sensible because you couldn't speak the language and you were in a foreign culture? It's supernatural. That's the only way. This is something God has to do. This is why a lot of missionary believes in supernatural manifestations is because they see God save people when it seems absolutely, totally impossible. That mission has experienced this. Some years ago, a man came to them and said, I had a dream about Isa, which is Jesus. They're Muslims. And they said, I had a dream about Jesus, and he told me to come and talk to you, and you would explain him to me. Now, if that bugs you, I think there's something wrong with you. Because who cares where he got this? I don't care if he had, ate some bad pizza and had a dream. If somebody came to me and said, you know what? I had this dream, and I want you to explain who Jesus is to me. I would say, gladly. I'd love to tell you who Jesus is. I wouldn't say, you know, those kind of things don't happen anymore. Something's wrong with you. And God would say, something's wrong with you. You lost it. So we rely upon his character in temptation. You know, the questions that we need to ask ourselves when we're going through these kinds of things is this. Can I trust God to meet my needs through Christ? What are you afraid of right now? What are you really fearful of? You fearful of losing your valuables? You afraid of somebody attacking you out in the public? Are you afraid of an earthquake? What are you afraid of? You need to trust God to meet your needs through Christ. Secondly, will I admit my problems are, are without blame shifting? You remember back in Genesis 3 when uh, God spoke to Adam and Eve? And he says, Why, what's going on? And he says, well, we, didn't, we were hiding because we were naked. And Jesus says, did you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? In other words, they were even able to judge themselves. And, he, and so Adam said, well, when God said, why did you do that? He says, well, that woman you gave me. <laughs> it's that woman you gave me. So am I going to admit my problems without blame shifting? I, I actually experienced this in a conversation I was having with a man, and he started telling me what was wrong with his wife, why he had been unfaithful, because something was wrong with his wife. And I wanted, to, I wanted to weep, to be so foolish, to be so deceived. And then will I cling to the truth in the face of my own delusion about myself? Will I just face the truth? I need God every moment. I need God to empower me. I need what, exactly what the disciples needed when Jesus said, go and wait in Jerusalem until you were endued with power from on high. I need God's power. You need God's power. If you have trouble loving people, the only solution is the power of God, the magnificent power of the Spirit to control your heart and to give you a love for people because they were purchased by the blood of Christ. And then will I take appropriate action? And we'll look at that next week when we come back to this, the next section of this, of this book. I pray that God would work in your lives. I pray that all of us in this flock, this little flock, I pray that all of us would be people who know that we have been put in this world, in this particular location, in order to love people. 
and God's going to bring people into our lives who desperately need the love of Christ manifested through broken and needy and not perfect people like us. That's why we're here. So let me pray for us. Our Father, we recognize our great need. We have not arrived. We need the Spirit of God to work in our lives. Father, we have experienced temptation, and there's times we would like to blame it on somebody else. I'd like to blame it on my circumstances. I've even heard people blame it on God. But Father, I know it's me. I know it's my heart. I know it's the flesh that still dwells in me. And so I pray that you would sober us and wake us up and let us see that you do allow us to go through trials, not to tempt us, but to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we would no longer trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And we know that you can raise us from the dead because you have. And we know you can raise others from the dead if they simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray that you would cause that to sink deeply into our hearts and our lives, Father. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please you in all respects, which includes being an instrument in your hands. Thank you for the privilege, Father, that you bring people into our lives who desperately need us to manifest the love of Christ to them by sharing the truth with them. And so I pray that you would empower us to do that. Use us for your glory. Draw us close to you. Help us to walk in the Spirit, Father. Make us pneumatic evangelicals, not a bunch of uh, people who know all the facts, who know all the doctrines. We don't want to be rationalists. We want to be led by the Spirit. So please, Father, work in our lives. Even this week, show us your power. Show us your presence, we pray. And use us for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.